Good evening, everyone. Oh, you respond better than grade school kids do. This is amazing. That was very good. Can we repeat now? Yeah. I'd like to begin with a little prayer, introduce uh, Father Heaney, and, uh, and hand it over to him for this wonderful talk on evangelization and, and leadership as well. So in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Holy Spirit, and they shall be recreated. And you shall renew the face of the earth. Heavenly Father, we ask you to send forth the Holy Spirit to be with us as we consider the importance of evangelization, that the gospel might resonate in the hearts and minds and souls of all those that uh, we presently serve and will serve, uh, God willing, future, uh, as future priests. We ask, too, that you might continue to help Father Heaney in his apostolic work and ministry. And we ask all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Right. We're very pleased to have with us uh, Father Heaney, who is on campus this week for all sorts of different um, talks, uh, meetings with various people. It's very nice to have also uh, Mr. Simon Newman, President Newman, with us uh, this evening as well. And um, I would really want to thank also faculty and staff that's here. Uh, they're not absolutely required, but you see they show up anyway. So that's a good thing. Just a little background, if uh, you don't know Father Heaney, he is well known, I understand, in California. All over California. So much so that I think even uh, you all know the now Bishop Robert Barron, uh, is very interested in some of the work that Father Heaney has been doing over the years. Uh, and if uh, you know that with Father Barron, there's got to be something really great that's been going on that he's been interested in. So Father Heaney certainly will be explaining a little bit about some of that work uh, that he has done. Um, he grew up in Thousand Oaks, California, and ordained a priest for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles in 1978. In 91, he received a master's degree in marriage, family, and child counseling from the University of Southern California. He's written a number of books, including Motivating Your Parish to Change, uh, a book on spiritual leadership from resource publications, and the author of Don't Tell Me What to Do, a concise Catholic view of modern moral issues, which was published in 2002. Um, in 2001, he became the local chaplain for the Legatus organization, uh, which is a National Catholic Business Leaders Association. I think some of you might be familiar with Legatus in your own individual diocese. And in 2002, he founded something called the University Series, which is uh, a multi-parish adult education program that attracts over 10,000 people. Uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Mr. Newman, is that's where you encountered Father Heaney initially. Before that. Well, even before that. Even Way before that. that. So there's been um, a great university series, a Catholic uh, adult education series uh, that uh, Father Heaney can also talk about. Uh, either in his talk, or if you have any uh, questions, uh, we're going to just have him give a lecture about a half hour or so, 45 minutes, and there will be opportunities for all of us to ask him any questions that you'd like. Uh, every June, Father Heaney hosts an exciting 12-day pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Some of that trip also is part of his expertise in the Middle East, that I'm sure he'll explain. And uh, right now, he is taking some time to write several books, one of which is on Paris leadership. Is that right? Okay. And I think his comments today will be primarily from the research right. and writing that he's been done, that he's been doing in that area. So without further ado, I introduce you to Father Dave Heaney.
Father. That was quite an introduction. Uh, by the way, that guy should, couldn't show up, so I'm taking his place. <laughs> um, very glad to be here at the Mount, and uh, very glad especially to be here. I, I Really, talking on the Middle East is kind of the main occasion for me coming here, but really, I was actually mainly happiest about being here to talk to you, because we're in the same vocation. So I think the first thing I want to say to you is thank you for responding to your calling. God willing, God will call you to the rest of the priesthood. I'm 37 years in the ministry, and it gets better and better every year. I thoroughly enjoy what I do. It is extremely rewarding, and I'm sure that you will too. Uh, it's especially rewarding when uh, I kind of define ministry as, as simply, simply this, that what we do on a daily basis, all day long, is we help people meet Jesus. When people meet Jesus, like happened in scripture stories, wonderful things happen. You can't meet Jesus and stay the same. And so when you meet the Lord, powerful things happen. And we have the great joy of helping other people do that and watching what happens in their life, especially in a parish ministry, when you see the magical things that happen when people authentically meet the true, authentic Jesus. I think the last 12 years have been especially rewarding for me because of this university program. It started very small, it's grown very big. It's only during the season of Lent, kind of a traditional time of renewal, and so I have been able to watch that experience uh, of people change their lives because of simply providing an experience where people can meet the Lord in an authentic way. So today I want to talk to you about evangelization. Uh, fancy word, it's a jargon word. I almost never use it because it's a technical jargon word. I like to tend to communicate directly to people, so I just talk about how to change your life. Um, and I want to just go back to this moment when Jesus said to the apostles, uh, I want you to go into the whole world and baptize the world. And I think that the apostles must have said something like this. Are you serious? This can't be done. The milieu in which they lived was the Roman Empire, uh, fairly hostile to new religions. They tolerated Judaism because it was ancient, but they didn't like new things. So for this new thing to kind of go around the world was quite extraordinary. Plus, these are not people of the world. They are people of a local community. And to be expected to go into the far regions of the Roman Empire was really something they just couldn't fathom. The Roman Empire at that time was approximately <coughs> the size of the United States. So just imagine you're in Maryland, and you are told that you're going to go to Seattle. It's just a long way away. And yet, they were successful. Within a few generations, most of the Roman Empire had turned Christian. So how is it that they were successful in changing people who were from, of one culture and encountering people from other cultures, and they were astoundingly successful? And by the way, one of the reasons why they might have said, are you serious? is that no other ancient religion had ever done this ever before. No other religion ever was involved in conversion. Christians, or Jesus, invented the idea of conversion. Persian religion, Egyptian religion, Greco-Roman religion, no Assyrian, Babylonian, none of these religions sought converts. They didn't mind if you converted, but it was always for the purpose of making their empire more powerful. So no other religion ever sought converts. Uh, 
Christians were the very first people to walk up to people and say, would you like to become a Christian? Now, Jesus, you know, at some point before he left, gave them the motivation. And he said, I'm going to tell you now why I have come. And there's a lot of different reasons that you can call from the scriptures, but he quite says quite clearly why I have come. In John 10.10 10 and John 15.11, I have come that you might have life and life to the fullest. I have come that you might have joy and joy that is complete. Now, that joy is very, very deep-seated. And, uh, you know, Pope Francis wrote his encyclical on the gospel of joy. But, you know, all of the popes, uh, they, they highly value this idea of continuity. So that one pope is not saying something that's radically new from other popes before. They, so they tend to liberally quote from one pope to the other to get that idea of connection, continuity, con continuity going back to St. Peter. So what I want to do for this uh, little talk on evangelization is actually, instead of giving you anyone else's ideas, I thought it might be good to really get the ideas of Jesus himself as he trained his disciples to go out into the empire the size of the United States. I think that's a good idea. And every time I say that, it reminds me of a story, a typical LA story. Uh, you know, when I was in St. Monica's with Simon, we had a lot of celebrities there. And I remember I was at a, a reception, and there was an actor there that if you saw his face, you would know instantly that he was an actor. You would recognize him. He was very, very big in the, in the 80s and 90s. He was in every TV show. He was never the star. He was always the second guy. He might have been the bad guy. But he was always, he worked a lot. He's a very devout Catholic. He's now presently the voice of the BMW commercials. But he was always in all the 80s and 90s TV shows. Joe Campanella, maybe you remember the name or not. He's kind of a second tier beer B-level status. So I was at, a, I think, a wedding reception when he was there. And, and this lady walked up to him and said, uh, oh my god. I." You're a star. You're a celebrity. I recognize you. I know who you are. You, you, you I just, you are, uh, ma'am, my name is, no, no, don't tell me. Don't tell me. I want to guess. I want to guess, please. I, I, I just saw you on TV last week. You're great. You are, you, oh, it's right on the tip of my tongue. You, you are, you are, ma'am, my name is Joe Campanella. No, no, that's not it. That's not it. <laughs> you know, let Joe tell you his name, right? Let Joe tell you his own name. Let's let Jesus tell us how to evangelize. We don't have to cull this or figure this out, ferret it out from a lot of obscure verses. There's actually a very, I think, underused passage from the Gospel of Luke in which Jesus delineates exactly his training method. In my book, this is the basis of my book, I call it the Jesus Method. The Jesus Method works in any culture anywhere in the world. If these fishermen and tax collectors and various people from Galilee could leave Palestine, it wasn't called that then, and go out into the far regions and inspire other Christians to go into the far regions, to other cultures, then that proves the Jesus method works. This works across cultures, across ages, across circumstances. The Gospel of Luke, this is the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 10. It's the whole gospel. I'm only going to focus on four verses. 
This is the famous gospel where Jesus picks 72. He picks 72 to go out two by two into the surrounding regions. He is literally sending them on a practice mission. I want to see how you do. Because they come back and they report. And Jesus is very happy with the report. Remember he says he, he glorifies God. And he says he saw Satan fall like lightning from the sky. Satan falls because of what fishermen do because they followed this training Jesus method of Jesus. Do you remember that passage? One of the first things that Jesus comments on is he says, uh, <clears throat> when you go into any house, say peace to this house, right? Say peace to this house. That has to be, uh, now he, did, he doesn't say be at peace with this house. He says, say peace. You have to actively communicate that you mean no harm. You have to actively communicate that you come in a friendly way. You, have, you know nothing about the people in this house. You don't know if they're pagan, Presbyterian, Democrat, Republican, anything. But before you, anything happens, you have to be, make the first step and actively communicate that you mean, that you mean a peace with this person. It has to be real. It cannot be fake. You know, this is an election year. I don't know if you know that, but we're in a campaign. And, uh, you know, people are highly sensitive to candidates who are giving genuine responses or responses that are clearly coming from a focus group, right? So this, this kind of attitude of peace that you have towards people has to be real and genuine. Now there's another part of it though that's gonna sound like faking, but it can't be. But it's actually a sense of responsibility that you have. Years ago I was uh, uh, walked into an office depot to do the exciting thing about picking up some office supplies. And uh, I was kind of leaning on a shopping cart, just kind of walking through, you know, not really, kind of bored. And I walked by a little display that had a display of security cameras. And usually what they do is they have one of them on with a screen so that you can see what it looks like. And the camera is usually pointed into the aisle so that you can see yourself on it. And I didn't quite recognize it because again, I was not really paying attention. And I'm walking along and I look over and I suddenly see that it's me. And I'm horrified, shocked, and dismayed because I looked angry and mean. Now, I had just arrived in this parish, and I wasn't <coughs> angry, and I wasn't being mean. I was actually kind of bored. But I suddenly realized that my face looked that way. And then I thought, my God, what if there's some parishioners in this store that look over and say, oh my God, there's Father Dave. He's the brand new priest here. Uh, let's go, no, no, he's looking mean. <laughs> okay, now it sounds like a shallow thing, Sounds like a small thing. It's not. Hands move things. Faces move people. Uh, I've been reading a lot of the preparatory work to the October Synod night of 2014, the very first Synod. A lot of the preparatory work talked about the look of Jesus, the look of Jesus at people and that people responded to the gaze of Jesus, and it was the gaze of mercy, as Pope Francis likes to say, the gaze of love. 
So there is something about our face that we have to be responsible for. When I was younger, uh, I had a natural smile. I had a dolphin smile. I just naturally would smile. Gravity has taken its toll, uh, so I look like an upside-down dolphin now. Uh, now, it just means that I just have to be aware, self-aware, of how I am in any setting. Because people cannot read your mind. It's not enough to be at peace with people. This first message is Jesus says you have to actively communicate it. You have to say at peace, and you can say it both by words and by uh, gestures and expression and behavior. Does that make sense? It's not a small thing. Don't, don't dismiss it as cosmetic. It's, this is the way people operate. I, I do have a degree in psychology. This is the way that people operate because we are highly attuned to people's face. I can miss every detail here in this room. Afterwards, I could forget whether they're blue or green chairs. But from a distance way in the back of the room, I can tell whether someone is looking at me or the person next to me. And that's only because the eyes have moved a micron to the left. That's how sensitive our eyes are, because we are so attuned to, a, to, a, to faces. So the first step in evangelization is we have to have this, we have to make the first step in communicating peace. The second passage is even more powerful. It says, eat what they set before you. Now, at first hand, the, the disciples, all the hands must have gone up. This is, these are Jews listening to Jesus who says, eat what they set before you. Excuse me, Jesus, what if it's lobster? This is a kosher society. And Jesus says, eat what they set before you. Now, this is not a matter of simply being polite. This is actually a metaphor or a symbol for a deeper underlying reality. Eat what they set before you is a way of saying, find out what nourishes these people. What is the food that they feed on? What is the narrative that organizes their life? What is the ethos, the philosophy, the principle that feeds, that nourishes, that feeds this person that you're talking to? Does that make sense? So, and that takes time. So eat what they set before you. The third thing is cure the sick. So if you can do that, that's great. But that's also a symbol, I think, really, of simply finding out if there's something very practical that you can do right away that's helpful and useful. When I first came to St. Pascal's, there was a huge problem because there was the choir pastor had done a spectacular job renovating the church. Beautiful job renovating the church, but he put a large sculpture right behind the altar that in my entire career, I have never encountered anything in my life in which there was literally 100% angst and hatred for that sculpture behind the altar. 100% of the people hated it. <laughs> I was the luckiest guy in the world. Because I just arrived in this parish, and I, on my second Sunday, I went up and I said, there's something wrong here. And instant standing ovation. <laughs> I rode that honeymoon for 12 years. <laughs> so find something good and practical and useful that you can do right away. 
What does that communicate? It communicates that you like these people and that you want to help them and that you want their life to be better. Okay. So find something useful and practical that you can do right away. The fourth thing is announce the reign of God. Now think about that. That's the fourth thing. Announce the kingdom of God. Is there any message more powerful, more important than where you're going to spend eternity? Is there any message more important than the kingdom of God? Yes, there is. Jesus puts it last on the list. You don't lead with that. You lead with peace. Then you take the time to find out what feeds them. Then you do something good. And then only then do you announce the reign of God. Many evangelizers begin with four. They start with the message of salvation. And Jesus himself did not. He was announced in Bethlehem as the Prince of Peace. Jesus followed the Jesus method. He starts in Bethlehem as announced as the Prince of Peace. He spends 30 years eating our food, finding out what it's like to be a human person, living the human narrative. He cures the sick, and then he announces the reign of God, which turns out to be the message that God himself does the first three. Does that make sense? Now, our motive for doing this is, again, we, we do this because we want them to have life, and we want their life to be full. When you're, um, the other story I remember is, uh, this, this is a true story. Uh, one of my classmates told me that uh, he was at a Super Bowl party. And all these people were watching the Super Bowl, a lot of families, a lot of children. And all of a sudden there was a commercial for Disneyland. If you want to know that there actually is the happiest place on earth, we actually have it here in Orange, California. That's where, I mean, have you been to Disneyland? Anyone? If you remember walking into Disneyland, uh, there's all the ticket booths, and then there's a space behind it for people to gather before they walk into the park. They go through a tunnel to go into the park. So they're all watching this uh, Super Bowl game, and a Disneyland commercial comes on, and one of the kids goes nuts because Mickey Mouse comes on the screen. And he just goes crazy. Oh my God, this is Mickey. This is wonderful. This is, I love Mickey. This is funny. This is great. And all the adults are kind of taken by the charm of this. And so they say, hey, you know what? Let's all, we're all friends. Let's all get in the car some weekend and let's all go down to Disneyland. So they make the date. They all get together. They have this car caravan. They go down to Disneyland. Little Johnny is bouncing up and down in the car. He can't wait to get there. He's so excited. They get to the park. They go up to the gates. They pay their $500 a person ticket. <laughs> and uh, they begin to assemble on the other side of the gate in that kind of assembly area. And Johnny is on the shoulders of his parent. And wouldn't you know it, within a few minutes of being there, who comes around the corner but Mickey Mouse? Johnny goes nuts. Mickey, you came, you're great, you know, Minnie, they're taking pictures. And this is like charming. I mean, the parents are so ecstatic that everything is working out really well and Johnny's having a good time. Now it's time to go in, now they're all together, let's all go into the park. The second they begin to move, Johnny screams out, no, no, no. And they're all startled. And he's angry, no, no, I don't want to go. And they're like, hey, this kid was the reason for the trip. What's going on here? So they, no, no. And then they suddenly realize 
Little Johnny thought that that front area, he thought that was Disneyland. He thought that was the park. And the father said, I had this amazing experience of taking my son and holding him, and, and he was angry and screaming and squirming, and going through the tunnel, and watching his eyes that were so angry, and going through the tunnel, and then suddenly see his eyes get wide as, as the whole park you know, spread out before him. And he just saw how big and magical the Magic Kingdom was. We have to have that kind of vision for people. Most, many of our parishioners have a sense that their world is actually quite small. It's only this big. And we have the luxury and the honor and the great privilege of helping them go through the tunnel sometimes, see how big and spectacular it is, the world that happens when you meet, when you have an authentic meeting with the true Jesus. Does that make sense? It is a tremendous privilege. We don't want to step on that process. Uh, what I recommend is let's listen to the Lord himself as he trained his own disciples to do this. I think Jesus knew what he was doing. And if we follow the Jesus method, I think we can have the same success um, that our Lord did. So thank you for listening, and I look forward to your questions. I just have one more one more story to tell. This is I think this is important because uh, uh, if we just pay attention to the example of Jesus, it is just extraordinarily rich. When I was at school at SC, many many times when I was in class, I would listen to the professor talk about some psychological point, and I would say to myself, "Oh my God, that sounds familiar. That I've heard this before. Oh yeah." That's the parable of the, you know. So really what our Lord designed for us is actually fits perfectly in with what it means to be a human person, right? As Benedict says, Jesus came to show us the human person. Uh, Pope John Paul, <clears throat> who was kind of my mentor, he was ordained, he became a pope just a few months after I was ordained. His favorite gospel, I think, was the rich young man in Mark 10, 17. Most of the splendor of truth wraps around that parable. Not that story. Let me just walk through the story for a second, because this is a moment of evangelization that did not work. Jesus is getting famous. A crowd is following him. Most of them misunderstand who he is. But he has a big, he has a big jocular crowd kind of uh, pushing and shoving and you know, kind of testing and seeing who he is. And a rich young man walks up to greet him. Now that is a very telling detail. A young, rich man. That means the entire community knew who he was because there were very few rich people and very few rich young people. He asks Jesus a very classic question. He says, how do I get to heaven? That is a classic bottom line question. In order for this rich man to be successful, he had to be young, he had to be assertive and aggressive and focused. He asks an assertive, aggressive question. It's almost like he's saying, Jesus, how do I get to heaven? Don't give me a sermon, don't give me a parable, I got a meeting, 
Just give me the answer, how do I get to heaven? Jesus picks that up. And he doesn't give a sermon. He doesn't give a parable. He simply, you want, a, you want the bottom line answer? Here it is. And he gives him a bottom line answer. And then the rich young man says, thank you, but no thank you. And he walks away. Now, that's embarrassing. The whole crowd is watching, and Jesus doesn't close the sale with the rich young man. What does Jesus do next? Nothing. He doesn't run after him. Jesus runs after the lost sheep because the sheep was lost, wants to come back, just doesn't know the way. The rich young man was not lost. He just had it perfectly explained to him by the master teacher, and he rejected it. And Jesus respects that decision. He says he looked at him with love. Again, that look, the importance of that look. He looked at him with love and let him go. So, as an evangelist, we don't close every sale. We don't take it personally. Or as I like to say, we don't take it personally. <laughs> it's hard, but we don't take it personally because it's not our story. It's the story of Jesus. And that either clicks, that either works, or it doesn't. If it works, we don't take the credit, and if it doesn't work, we don't have to take the blame unless we have done something wrong against the Jesus method. So Jesus lets the guy go. Now, some scholars, I don't know, maybe you've heard this, some, I've heard this, some scholars speculate that in this story in the Gospel of Mark, that rich young man that walked away was Mark. And that at some later date, came back to Jesus and then wrote his own story in the Gospel. Probably because there's a lot of details in the story and the whole thing about that look, that look with love. You, how do you know someone's looking at you with, at, with love unless you're the one receiving the look? It's hard to see it from the side. Someone who actually received the look of love would remember that and write it in his own story. So as an evangelizer, we do step one. We say peace to this house. We eat what they set before us. Before us. We get to know their narrative, what feeds them. We do easy wins. We try to help people right away with some kind of a good action. We announce the reign of God. And uh, if that works, we give thanks to God. And if it doesn't work, Perhaps someone else will read what we have sowed. So, any questions? Yes, sir. I think that this method happens at every single encounter with another human being. Okay, with every single encounter. So, I mean, there, there cannot be an encounter where you don't communicate peace. There can't be an encounter where you're not interested in the other person. You know, they talk about the classic LA conversation, cocktail conversation. You're at a cocktail party in Los Angeles. This only occurs in LA. You're at a cocktail party in LA and somebody's talking to you about themselves, about themselves, about themselves, about themselves, about themselves. Finally they finish and they say, well, that's enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think of me? <laughs> classic LA conversation. Uh, so, I mean, at every single conversation. Now, 
what happens is after a while it becomes instinct. It's going to be, if you're not doing it, then it's going, to sound, it's going to be a little artificial at first, as any new behavior is. But as of, after a while, it becomes uh, instinctive, and then it becomes internalized. Remember the very first words that Jesus spoke when he began his ministry for looking for disciples. He said, follow me. He didn't say, understand me. He didn't even say, believe in me. He said, do what I do and the insights will follow. If you do the behavior, the insights will follow. He said, follow me. So he just tells them to do these things. He doesn't explain them. He just says, do these things. Say peace, eat what they set before you, cure the sick, and uh, announce the reign of God. So in every conversation that you have, it makes common sense. You want to first, you want to be able to communicate that you don't have an upside dolphin face, that you are at peace. Uh, you're interested in the other person. If there's something that you can do to be helpful, you do that right away. Um, and so I think every conversation can go that way. And by the way, sermons go this way. I'll give you, uh, when I was uh, in the seminary, I was going to leave the seminary because I was incapable of public speaking. You may be agreeing with that now anyway. <laughs> I was incapable of public speaking. And thanks be to God, a nice professor worked with me and and taught me this method, which is kind of also based on this. Um, <clears throat> you know, uh, Pope John Paul used to always talked about, we don't need teachers, we need witnesses, right? We don't need teachers, we need witnesses. And this is the way it can happen in a sermon. When I'm giving a sermon, I ask myself three questions when I'm preparing. As I'm writing, as I'm preparing my sermon, I'm giving these three questions. At the beginning of Mass, I go through those questions again. I generally preach from the middle of the church, so when I walk from the pulpit, from the gospel, to the middle of the church, I ask myself these three questions three last times. And if the answer is yes to each question, then I am the most unnervous person in the world, and I cannot wait to get this sermon out. The first question I ask is, is the material good? Is there meat in the material? Is there something substantive, insightful, innovative, helpful, useful, practical in this material? The second, do I believe it? Do I actually believe what I'm saying? And the third is the most important, and will change everything. As you look out at the congregation, you have to ask yourself this question. Do I love these people? Because if I love them, I want what's best for them. And I have a good thing here. I have a good thing. I have some good meat. And I believe it. And I like these people. I love them. And I want them to have it. So the entire motivation of the sermon is doing something helpful to the people that you love. And people can tell if you love them or not, or if you are simply teaching them. Does that make sense? So if you, can, if you can do those three questions at every moment, and especially the last seconds before you preach, do I have good material, do I believe it, and do I love these people? Because preaching a sermon is an act of love. You are doing something that's very loving. 
and it's very uh, evangelizing. So that's a long answer to your question, but uh, so. But I think every every human encounter really is an opportunity for evangelization. That's the meaning of the new evangelization, also. That it's kind of like every opportunity is an opportunity for evangelization. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you, Father. I appreciate what you had to say. Um, would you say that you could um, the second one? I like the one where you said eat what they said before. Yeah. Would you necessarily have to use the method of the same route every single time for each person? Or would you therefore use that same kind of thing only in a bigger sense? Where you recognize where this person's at and then going from there? I would say that the that how you're going to understand it or the timing of when you understand it is going to be different for each person each person. Some people are more talkative than others, some people are quiet, some people are reticent. It may be it may be more difficult to get to know what makes this person tick. This is a very, very big thing in psychology, uh, narrative therapy, you know, what's the narrative of this person? How do they understand themselves? Am I a victim? The world hates me. Uh, I'm better than everybody. You know, these are kind of narratives that people tell themselves, and kind of knowing that is important. You know, are, uh, are people gluttons for compliments? All right. So what nourishes them is they need a lot of praise. They need a lot of affirmation. So now you know what nourishes them. Now, in no way does Jesus say that the food that they're nourishing on is any good. He's not simply condoning uh, what people are... But you need to know what it is. All right. Uh, if somebody is very uh, selfish and demands a lot of attention, doesn't mean you give it to them. But you need to know what that food is. You need to, you need to know what food is eating is nourishing them. Yeah. Can I answer? Absolutely. I like I like your response a lot. So could you say that's kind of a, a very almost a spiritual sense of knowledge, like seeing what they're doing. So therefore, could you say maybe uh, like a, a necessity for like prayer and like rooted in the sacraments because of being following Christ, of being that way. So so doing both bringing them both together. I'm not sure I understand that. So, so, <laughs> sorry. Um, so, like, to know that where the person's at, right? It's yeah. Like a spiritual kind of, like, knowledge. And, and no, no, say, no, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's actually what it is. It's paying attention. Okay. It's listening, observing, not jumping to conclusions, uh, and basically being receptive. You know, you're, you're in a receptive mode. And just listening to the person talk, and then picking up. Now, just after a while, as you do this, you get better at it. But you don't. The, I think maybe I should have said this. You don't just settle on it right away. You don't jump to conclusions because you, it's easy to be wrong. So you just take your time. You just get a little sense of the person. As you do it with hundreds of people in the parish, you get a sense of the parish. You know, when I was in uh, Pasadena area in LA for about 15 years. This is an area that treasures heritage, history, you know, uh, tradition, the 120th Rose Parade, you know, that kind of thing. That's where it is, the Rose Bowl. So they, what fed them was the sense of tradition, history, things like that. Then I moved to Santa Monica. What fed them there was show business. So the big, the thing that fed everybody there was emotions, feelings, because show business is based on feelings. So in Pasadena, it was based on history and heritage and tradition. 
In Santa Monica, it was based on emotions and feelings and being a star and all that kind of thing. So we're not condoning any of these things, but you need to know what these people. And then what we do is, once we know that, then we have a better sense of how to bring the food that we want. Now, maybe this will help too. I, I was talking earlier with uh, some of the faculty about another mistake that evangelizers make is thinking that the message that you have is just so darn good. You know, that simply saying this message of Jesus is going to be effective. Jesus says himself, don't do that. Okay, so I'm going to pay attention to Jesus. Now here's the, here's the parable that he used for that. The parable of the good seed. Sowing the seed, some falls on rocky ground, thorny ground, bad ground, and some on good ground. What's common in all those stories is the seed. The seed is spectacular. The seed is the word of God. There's nothing wrong with the seed. But if you throw it on rocky ground, nothing will happen. Simply throwing out seed is not the idea. The idea is to be a good farmer. And before you sow the seed, you prepare the ground. So you have to prepare your audience to, to receive the seed. You just can't blast people the message. That's why Protestant evangelizers are so irritating. You know, they walk up to you and have, do you ever accepted Jesus as your savior? You don't even know my name, pal. <laughs> so just blasting people with, a, with the word is not what Jesus did. Remember, he took 30 years to prepare the ground. You know, when he walked along the Sea of Galilee that we go to every year, and he calls the disciples and he says, follow me. And all of a sudden the disciples drop everything and they walk with him. We have this magic kind of idea that Jesus was so powerful that the disciples could, were just overwhelmed and they followed. That's not the case. Jesus was walking up to people who knew him very well. He knew that the disciples knew Jesus for some time before they were called. Even Matthew. So the, the ground is prepared. So when Jesus finally said, follow me, that ground had already been prepared. We don't lead with step four. Right? We have to prepare the ground. Sorry for the long answers. But yeah. So in regard to uh, something the church has been talking about for uh, equipping the lady mm -hmm. to, to be more leaders and missionaries in the church, um, I don't know, I guess just your opinion on that as far as uh, your experience of trying to do that in the parish, um, you know, with everything else going on, and uh, like, what does that look like, and, and what can we, you know, try to think about doing in the future to help equip the laity to become leaders uh, in in our parishes? Okay, that's a great question. The question is, uh, you know, the church has this idea of equipping lay people and empowering them to be leaders and all that kind of thing. So. How does this interact? How does what I'm saying interact with them? Okay. Uh, this is a danger that I see in this that I'll just warn you about. And I, this is sometimes a, I, my main experience is Los Angeles. It's my actually only experience, so I'm trashing them right now. But, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> sometimes that is an excuse for pastors to not lead. Okay. A pastor is a pastor pastor must lead. Now, he can do everything he can to help others become leaders, but it's not in place of him. And sometimes that's a danger you find in pastors saying, well, 
Somebody will ask the pastor a question, but I don't know. I'm not going to do an Irish accent with this. <laughs> we have a lot of Irish priests, you know. But, uh, <clears throat> they'll say, well, Father, what do we do about that? He says, well, let, I don't know. Let me, let me talk to the parish council about that. Okay. That's an abdication. You can't hide behind committees. You can't hide behind, uh, you, know, uh, you know, groups of people. You are made a pastor. This is a definite canonical position. Leaders must lead. Now, you don't step on people. Okay? There was no doubt that Jesus was in charge. He was the leader. He said, follow me. But he created an example that then people could imitate. So what you would hope is that a good pastor in a parish who says, Bob or Mary, I'd like you to run this ministry, Bob or Mary will look at you on how to do that over there. They're not going to be able to do it if you're abdicating. Right? So you want to, you're always giving a good example of leadership so that the parishioners that you have in these various ministries have before them someone who's doing it well. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Father, how do we overcome fear when it comes to evangelization, especially fear that Okay, that's a great question. How do I deal with fear of rejection? Right. Uh, well, <laughs> because you don't lead with the story of salvation. Before you get to the story of salvation, you have already communicated peace to this person. You've taken the time to get to know them. And so in other words, you've established a relationship. Someone that you have a relationship with is not going to reject you in, in a harsh way. If you walk up to someone and say, have you heard about Jesus Christ? Get the hell out of here. <laughs> that's a rejection. <laughs> and that hurts. Okay. So, so you don't do that. You know, Jesus was very practical. Jesus loved his disciples. He wasn't going to send them out there to get, he didn't want them to get hurt. He was preparing them to go into these faraway areas. He said, don't stay home. I want you to go out there. But he gave them very practical advice to be able to affect evangelization and at the same time, you know, uh, not get step, not get devastated. So you'll be okay if you follow the Jesus method. And that's why I told you the story about Mark. Remember, Jesus himself was rejected. Right? The rich young man walked away. Uh, and uh, Jesus did not take it personally. Yes, sir. Father, how do you not kind of slip into the problem of never getting to the actual message? Kind of just staying in the first, you know, conveying Actually, you don't make the mistake of thinking number four is the message. Number one, two, and three are the message. I mean, what is the very first thing that God wanted to communicate at Christmas? The very first thing. I come in peace. This is a sinful world. I always, when I go to Bethlehem, 
I always give this sermon at Bethlehem. I talk about, uh, I have this, I do this image of, this is not theologically correct, but it's nice, it's very evocative. I talk about Jesus in heaven the night before Christmas. He's getting prepared to be born in the stable in Bethlehem, and all the angels are around Jesus, getting him ready, ministering to him, and getting him prepared. And finally, the chief angel walks up to him and says, Jesus, you're about to be born in Bethlehem. You're about to go to planet Earth. I have two words of advice. Don't go. This is a very bad place. It's filled with human beings, and they will hurt you. And then Jesus says, nothing will stop me from being with the people I love. I'm going. So, he, and so yes, it is filled with very bad people who blow up concert halls, who shoot up restaurants, and shoot innocent people in France. It's filled with a lot of bad people. And yet, God wants to make sure that human beings know that I come in peace. So that first step is not simply being the happy salesman who has a smile. That's a very profound message of our faith, to be at peace with even a bad person. I mean, that's what it means. You have to be at peace even with a sinful, bad person. So. This is the very first message that God wanted to communicate at Christmas. He communicates a second message. Not only am I going to come in peace, but my guy, Jesus, is going to stay here for 30 years and live among them. He's going to walk, you know, what other God walks the planet with us? And then cure the sick. So these th first three are not actually lead-ins. They actually are the message. Father, what... Uh, what advice do you have for priests or pastors to uh, to implement or roll this out at their parish in terms of how to have practically help them and equip them in, in addition to teaching them like yeah. you have with us? Uh, I, that's a very good question. How do what are kind of practical programs that you can use to roll this out? Um, you want to you what you can do is is be the average person. Put yourself in the steps of the average person who's walking into your church. What do they see? Okay, so you have to see it from their viewpoint. What do they see? Um, what's the signage like? Is there a welcome sign? No. Is it hard to negotiate where to go? Is it hard to find out where to park? These are actually little practical things that people pay attention to. So that's the, you know, what's the welcome that you have? Are you in front of the church at every Mass? We have to do that. We have to be in front of the church before and at the end of every Mass to be available, to shake hands, to say hello, that kind of thing, um, and to make sure that all of your staff are that way. These are very practical things. Uh, I would say the second one is uh, don't jump to conclusions about what don't jump to conclusions about what you're going to do in the parish, unless it's unless it's a turnaround parish. If it's a disaster, there's about six or seven different types of parishes, successful ones and turnarounds are the, are the bookends and everything in between. But let's say you're succeeding someone. This is a wonderful parish. Everything is going well. That parish you don't do much right away, right? But if it's a disaster parish that's in trouble and the Past, former pastor screwed everything up. When you go in there, you have to do something right away to show that it's under new management. So that's a that's cure the sick. That's a practical thing that you can do right away. 
The last thing I would say is this. We do have a problem with this in the church. Simon and I have been talking about it. I was talking about it a lot today with the faculty. We have to be careful of jargon. Now, you and I can talk in jargon. The word evangelization is jargon. We have to be very careful of theological, specialized vocabulary that is from our world. When we do adult education, we're not bringing people into our world. We're not, in, we're not socializing them into Catholic theology. We are taking the person of Jesus and presenting it to this person in a way that helps their life. We don't convert people to make the parish bigger. Remember our motivation. Our motivation is we convert people, we do teaching to make their lives better, their lives happier, to show that the world of Disneyland is bigger for them. So be very careful about uh, using a lot of technical language. It's really kind of a showing off, in all fairness, and people recognize it, and, it's, and it's, they, they shut down. So we are in the communication business, so you want to communicate. So don't bring people into our specialized world. We bring our person of Jesus to their world. Does that make sense? In our, in our university program, we have a rule. We have about 100 sessions per Lent. We have 11,000 people coming now. And uh, all of the, we, we tell all of our speakers, uh, we are inviting, we, we are letting you speak in this program because we believe and we, and we expect you to, to provide a program that will provide information that, this, that the audience can use the next day at home, family, or work. Practical information that they can use the very next day to make their life happier and better the next day at home, work, or school. So those are, those are practical ways of fulfilling these things, I think, in a programmatic way. This has been helpful. Any other questions? Yes, sir. When does your book come out? As soon as I find a publisher. <laughs> I really just kind of finished it a little while ago, and uh, I've written it in, in a different way. It's not just like a standard book, because priests don't read those kind of books. <clears throat> they put them on their bookshelf. <laughs> but. Uh, <clears throat> What I did is I, I, I wrote it chronologically, moving into the parish, your first Sunday, your first 90 days, the rest of the years, your last 90 days, and then your last day. And I took everything that happens, how to run a meeting, music, ministries, what I do with the school, that kind of thing. Under each chapter, I have about eight points, and each point is a paragraph, and each point is in bold, so really it's a succession of bold paragraphs that you can skim. Does that make sense? So it's, it's a way that people can just say, oh, I've got the liturgy meeting tonight, how should I do that? You know, what I think. Well, let me just say this. Uh, it has been a great pleasure and a great honor uh, to uh, speak with you today. Uh, I'm, as I said at the beginning, I'm 37 years in the business, 37 years as a priest. Uh, <clears throat> I'll just say one last thing. When, 
Are, are you all parish priests? Diocesan priests, mostly? Okay, even if you're not, at some point you might be in a parish. This is a danger that you want to be careful of. Obviously, you're going to be going from, you're going to have several assignments, I'm sure. Wherever you assigned after ordination, you're not going to spend the rest of your life there. So you'll be here for a number of years, and you're going to go someplace else for a number of years. The first place that you go, because it's your first place, will be very special to you, very meaningful to you, and you'll never forget it. It'll be hard to leave. When you leave, you're going to go to another place, and you're, and you're going to go, you know what? It was really hard to move, to move from that last place. So I'm not going to get as involved in the second place because I don't want to have those roots pulled out again. And the third place, even less. And the fourth place, even less. I kind of liken it to a plane that never lands. Just kind of touches down, takes off again. And the people can tell right away if you are here to stay or not. So my advice to you is wherever you are assigned, Pretend it's the last place that you will ever be. Wherever you go, completely, utterly, totally drop anchor. Completely, utterly, totally drop anchor. Get totally involved in that parish. When you go to the next parish, the exact same thing. Totally, completely, utterly drop anchor. The people will understand that as that you love them. And that is the most powerful expression of our Lord that you can do. Thank you.